Thank you for checking out this collision resource. Hey, there's something really important you need to know while you're listening to this message. You're going to hear some clinking and clanking going on, and that's because during the message, I was actually putting together a chair as I spoke. That might seem a little strange, but as you listen along, you'll catch on as to why. Thanks for checking this out. Hope it really helps. Please feel free to check out our website, collisionchurch.net. So I'm one of the pastors on staff here. There's a few other guys. Andrew, who, who led worship tonight, is another. And a couple months ago, we went to a friend's church nearby, and a bunch of us pastors were going to get together and just kind of hang out for a while. And as we were walking through the building, we saw something that got us super excited, and it was the stair chair lift. You guys have seen the commercial for these things, right? And so we were so excited about this stair chair lift, we had to ride it. And so I jumped on it first, and I rode the stair chair lift up the stairs, and then Andrew got on it. I actually have a video of him riding the stair chair lift. There he goes. So Andrew's riding the stair chair lift up and down the stairs. And it was really funny because he got to the top of this platform, and then you see there's another set of stairs. So he was riding the stair chair lift up the second set when my buddy's senior pastor walked out of his office to find out what was going on. And he looked and he sees Andrew riding this lift up the chair and I just completely threw him under the bus. I was like, Pastor, I'm so sorry this immature person jumped on the stair chair lift like this. You know, we're praying for Andrew's salvation. Some people take longer than others, you know, and so just kind of played it up and we had a good time. But I can tell you this, and this is gonna sound very, very unmanly of me, but the truth is, is that when I sat in that chair and I strapped myself in, I was a little nervous. I was a little bit nervous because I knew that here I am sitting in this chair, hanging over a set of stairs, and if this thing goes down, I'm strapped to it, and I'm going with it. Now, we don't have a stair chair lift here at the church. That's something I hope will change. Maybe we'll get a stair chair lift, you know, fundraiser going, uh, and Andrew and I will ride it up and down the stairs. But what I think you are asked to do every single time you walk into a church or every single time you're in a conversation with someone about Jesus, what I think you're asked to do is kind of like what Andrew and I did. You're asked to put your faith in something, and you're not quite sure about it. You're not quite sure if it can hold the weight of your life, just like me sitting in that chair, kind of sweating it. I hope this thing can do what it says it can do. And so often when you are in a conversation with somebody about God and about Jesus, they're saying to you, you can trust Jesus. And maybe you're on the other side of that going, I don't know if that's true. I don't know if I can trust Jesus. I don't know if I can, we're not just talking about my life. I don't know if I can trust him with the weight of my life, like my physical body. But if what you're saying is true, there's an eternity. And you're telling me I'm supposed to bet everything on Jesus. And so often, here's what happens. What happens is you step into a church, you're in a conversation with someone about Jesus. And what happens is they don't even really offer you a whole chair to sit in. What happens is they offer you a little piece of a chair a little piece of evidence, if you will. And they say, hey, trust Jesus. And maybe they, they say, you can trust Jesus. And, and maybe this little piece here represents the fact that he changed my life. So your friend's telling you, you can trust Jesus because he changed my life. He can change yours too. And you're looking at a bracket, just like when you walked in tonight and the greeting team said, oh, there's a seat over there. If someone handed you a bracket, you'd have been like, nah, I'm not sitting on a bracket. It's a bracket, right? Get the kids, we're going home, honey. We're not going to the bracket church, right? And so you would have said, I want the whole chair, I'll trust the whole chair. Like probably none of you, when you sat down in the chairs here tonight, even thought about, I hope this thing holds up, right? But if someone had said, oh, you know what? Once you enjoy this, I hope the service suits you well, you'd be like, that's just gonna be painful. That's not gonna go well, right? And so ultimately what happens is we're often asked to put our faith in one little piece of evidence. Oh, God changed my life. And you're sitting on the other side of that going, I'm not gonna put 
the weight of my life in eternity on what you just told me. Or maybe you've talked to a friend or you've come to a church and a guy like me is on stage and he's talking about the history and how you know Jesus, you can know Jesus rose from the dead because of history. And so again, holding out another little piece of a chair to you and you're going, I'm not gonna trust that. Now, this message is equally as important for you if you're a follower of Jesus because you know what's true of us. We believe. But you know what I think you may discover tonight? I think you may discover that your faith in Jesus may be in just one or two little pieces of evidence. And here's what happens. Let's say you believe in Jesus because once you prayed and God answered that prayer, like in an unmistakable way, undeniable. It wasn't just like, oh God, I don't feel well, and then he took some Pepto-Bismol and felt better. It was like huge, like lightning, you know, lightning from the sky, like wow, God showed up type moment, okay? Now, when you say, okay, because of that, I'm going to trust Jesus. That, that's not a bad thing necessarily, but when that's all you got, guess what happens the next time you pray and God doesn't answer it how you want? Your faith begins to fall apart. What happens if you're, you're a history guy, right? And so everything is about history. You studied history. You know Jesus rose from the dead. And so all your faith is based on history. Well, that's great until somebody on Discovery Channel starts to challenge your faith, Right? Somebody on the History Channel says something about Jesus, and you're like, wait a minute, what? And so often, I think as followers of Jesus, we're really just leaning on one or two things that can very easily be challenged, and then our faith can really implode. And so tonight, what I want to say is, what if, what if there are multiple pieces that could come together that could support the weight of your life in eternity? What if you didn't have to leave here tonight saying, trust Jesus because he changed my life. Trust Jesus because of history. What if you left tonight with evidence after evidence after evidence that would come together and you'd say, now that chair I'll sit in. That I could trust. Maybe some of you Christians here tonight are realizing, man, I've just, I've got my faith in just a few pieces of the evidence about Jesus. And again, that's not a bad thing, but, but what if you could have your faith in all the evidence about Jesus? So what I'm gonna do tonight is try to just convince you from my life story, from history, from prophecy, from all these different pieces, that it's not just about one little kind of leap of faith where we hope it's true and we'll find out when we die. See, what I'm doing tonight is not trying to get you to buy into a system of beliefs. I'm telling you the reason I follow Jesus and the reason I devoted my life to help others follow Jesus. Because I'm telling you right now, I would never live this life if I hadn't found the evidence that I found. Never. I wouldn't have gone halfway. I wouldn't have kind of believed. I wouldn't have hoped and then wished. And then hopefully one day when I open my eyes on the other side, if there is one, I see Jesus is real. No, I I had to know here and now if there was evidence that could support the weight of my life in eternity. And I think you want that too. I grew up in a Christian home. Uh, My dad is still a pastor. My mom was a worship leader until she passed away in November. My father-in-law is a pastor. I have two brother-in-laws who are pastors. I have several cousins who are pastors, okay? So we have a very Christian family, all right? We used to joke that even the pets in our home were Christians, you know? Like, when you told our dog to heal, he wouldn't come walk next to you. He'd go and find a sick person and start praying for him, you know? So whole different level of Christianity, all right? And so some of you are like, wait, what? Okay, it'll catch up. Or just prod your neighbor. They'll tell you later. Um, but when, when, when all was said and done, when I went to college, leaving a great Christian home, and I went to a Christian college even, but here I'm at this Christian college, and I'm starting to take classes like world religion and philosophy, and suddenly the evidences I had my faith built on started getting challenged. And what happened was I ended up ending up in a multi-year search. 
it was horrible. It was a terrible, terrible time in my life. Because I grew up kind of a fun kid, and I love to laugh. I still do. I love to joke around and have a great time. And, and, and I just grew up fun-loving. And suddenly it was like, wait, all this stuff I heard about Jesus might not be true? And, and purpose was ripped out of my life. And joy was ripped out of my life. And hope was ripped out of my life. And so for me, I had to find out if, if this was true or not. I had to say, all right, I'm not going to kind of half-believe this. I'm not going to hope it's true. I'm not going to wish it's true. And someday I'll find out when I die. No, I've got to find out here and now. Is there evidence to support the fact that Jesus loves me, that he existed, that he died, and that somehow he could rise back from the dead? And so I searched and I searched and I searched, and today what I'm going to give you is what I found. And like I said earlier, this is 10 weeks of a series that I'm smushing down into one message. Now, I want to tell you something. Normally, If you come here, you know something about the way that we communicate here. We try to be very clear. We try to be very focused. We try to give you one thing to go home with and live out. Now, today you are going to leave with one thing to go home and live out and base everything else on. But it's going to feel like I'm throwing a lot at you. And here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to try to remember everything that I say. Okay? Here's what I'd rather you do. I would rather you remember that I said a lot. I would rather you remember. So the day comes when you're in your own you know, philosophy class, when you're in your office and somebody brings up, oh, did you see that thing on Discovery Channel last night? When you're, when you're talking with a friend, when, when you start praying and it feels like God's not answering anymore, I, I hope you remember, man, I was at that collision service and that ball guy talked for like 40 minutes and wouldn't shut up about all this information. And man, all I remember is that there was a lot of evidence. I couldn't tell you what it all was. I couldn't give you every little detail and every fact and every statistic, but I just remember he went on and on. And I'm just telling you, I could do this nine more times than tonight. Okay, so there's tons and tons and tons of evidence that Jesus has come for us. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's check out what what the starting point for me was. The starting point for me was this. The first piece of the chair for me was this. It was the natural versus the supernatural. That was the first thing I had to figure out. I had to figure out, does the natural explanation for how we got here, does it add up? Does it make sense? Can it support life? Can it make sense to me so that I don't have to search for anything else? Or is there a supernatural behind it? Is there a maker? Is there a designer behind it? And I'll tell you, I think you probably can relate, that you feel kind of unintelligent to believe in anything besides the natural explanation. Because it feels like all the smart people around us believe in the natural explanation for how we got here. So you feel kind of dumb. You feel like, all right, I guess either you're smart or you believe in God. And you know what I found? I began to find that there were some really brilliant people who didn't buy the natural explanation. There were some brilliant minds, guys way smarter than me. There were professors, biologists, chemists, zoologists, physicists, anthropologists from Cambridge, Stale. Stale, that's a nice school. It's a new one. You should apply there. It's, uh, the food's not very good. Um, Cambridge, Stanford, Yale, Purdue. And they have chicken, Purdue. Anyway, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, and at these schools, these brilliant professors who are obviously a lot smarter than me, they made this statement in a, in a major newspaper that they took an ad out together. There was 100 of these guys. And the statement they made was this. We're skeptical of claims for the ability of random mutation and natural selection to account for the complexity of life. They said, we're skeptical. We're not buying the natural explanation. We think there's something behind it. We think there's a super 
natural. Now, for me, I began to really think about it. And, and in, in this you know, CD set that you could take home, I kind of go into a lot of the science of it and stuff. But tonight I'm not going to do that because we just don't have a ton of time. But here's what I could tell you. My conclusion, and you're not me, so your conclusion may not be this. But my conclusion was that the natural explanation just didn't cut it. And I had experienced enough things that I couldn't explain and seemed like a God thing, whoever that was, that I felt beyond the natural there had to be some supernatural. So that was my starting point. Now I need you to really listen to me because there are several, several of you in this room, I can guarantee that are ready to shut me down now because you're saying this in your head, if I have to believe in a creator, then I'm not listening to this guy anymore because I'll never believe in a creator. I'm a science guy. I'm, a, I'm not trying to push God versus science today, okay? I'm not trying to disprove or prove anything. And here's what I want you to know. If you would tune me out for the next half hour because of what I just said, because of the idea of a creator or a maker, then here's what I want you to do. I want you to forget I said it. I want you to ignore what I just said. Here's why. Because creation, although I believe it, it's not the central claim of Christianity. It's not even close to the central claim of Christianity. The central claim of Christianity is all about Jesus. And so my advice to you, if you're ready to like shut me out because you can't buy this, would be this. Listen for the next half hour and then figure out all that creation, evolution, science stuff another time. Do I believe what the Bible says? I do, but that's because of all the other evidence. But the starting point for me was that I believe there was a supernatural. So then the next question was, who is he? Who is it? What is it? I I knew a lot about Jesus, but I didn't know a lot about anybody else. And so what I did was I basically decided to search everybody out and line them up next to Jesus. And I asked this question, where do I find truth and where do I find power? Where do I find truth? Where do I find power? I looked at Buddha, Muhammad, Joseph Smith, um, L. Ron Hubbard, uh, Confucius, Zoroastrianism. You didn't even know about that one, right? I mean, I looked at everybody and everything I could get my hands on and line them up next to Jesus and said, when I look at their initial claim, Do I find truth and power, and how does it compare to Jesus? So let me tell you what I found. And this is no disrespect in any way to any other religion or system of belief, okay? I, uh, the stuff I'm going to tell you tonight is in no way a stretch. I'm not, you know, pointing out bad aspects of, of the certain religions. I'm simply telling you what a Buddhist or an Islam website or book would say. You go, Buddha, okay, what's your initial claim? And this is what he'd say his initial claim is. I was sitting under a tree one day, and I became enlightened. I I ridded myself of all desire and became enlightened. And so you got to give them the truth and the power test. So the truth test goes like this. All right, can you verify that you became enlightened? Can you prove that you became enlightened? And this is, if he could talk back to me, this is what Buddha would have said. I can't verify it. There was nobody there. I was under the tree by myself and I just became enlightened. Okay, well, what about power? I mean, does your enlightenment do anything for me? Could it save me? Could it change my life? Does it enlighten me? And again, if he could answer back, he'd say, no, you have to get yourself enlightened. You have to do that by ridding yourself of desire. That's on you now. So to me, I don't see verification and I don't see power to change anybody else's life. Okay, so then I took Muhammad and I said, all right, what's your initial claim? He says, well, I was in a cave one day and I saw an angel and they told me I'm the great prophet. I came out, I told my wife, I think I'd seen some evil spirit. She said, no, you're a good man. You gotta trust what you saw, so go with it. And so I went with it. So I'm the great prophet. All right, well, truth, can you verify that? Can you verify, was anybody else there? Anybody else see the angels? 
And he would say, no, no one else was there. No one else saw the angels. Okay, so it's not verifiable. All right, what about power? Muhammad, does you becoming the great prophet do anything for me? He'd say, nope, you gotta work your way to get where you want to go. And guys, I don't have time to go into it all, but every religion, every person you look to, everywhere you go says that exact thing. I can't verify it, and it doesn't have power for you at all. Then you take Jesus. You line Jesus up next to him. And, and here's, maybe for you, this is all you need to hear today, especially if you're not a follower of Jesus and you thought all religion was the same. Maybe this is all you need to hear today is then you take Jesus and you line him up with those. And you say, okay, Jesus, what's your initial claim? You know what his initial claim is? I'm the son of God and savior of the world. That's a huge claim. And then you go, all right, Jesus, well, where's the truth and the power in this? Can you verify this? Okay, he'd say, I can verify it. Well, how can you verify this? He'd say, well, I was publicly crucified and I publicly rose again. Now, you may not believe that at all yet. Hang on, we'll get to more evidence about that in a little while. But do you see the difference even in just that claim? Buddha says can't verify it. Muhammad says can't verify it. Joseph Smith, uh, you know, everybody else. L. Ron Hubbard, everybody else. No, can't verify, can't verify. Just did some research or this is just my experience. Jesus going publicly died, publicly rose. What about the power? What is your death and resurrection? If it actually happened, what does it do for me? And Jesus would say, it does everything for you. It saves you. It removes your sin. It makes you accepted by God. It gives you eternity in heaven. It gives you peace and joy and hope and satisfaction now. Are you seeing the difference? Are you seeing the difference just between Jesus and all the other ways and their claims? And so that was the second piece for me. Now the third piece for me was sacrifice and substitution. Have you ever realized that the entire story of God and his interaction with human history is all about Jesus? Like, this was a huge revelation for me because sometimes, and we'll just be honest, all right, sometimes when you read the Bible, doesn't it feel like in the first part of the Bible, which is called the Old Testament, God's up to one thing, and then when Jesus comes, he's up to a completely different thing, right? And it's like, was that contradictory? What's going on here? But you know what I began to realize? That all of human history and their relationship with God has to do with those two words. You see, every time somebody sinned in the Old Testament, what'd they have to do? They got a goat, they got an animal, and they sacrificed it. And that sacrifice covered the sin of those people. And then that sacrifice acted like a substitution because usually the people who sinned didn't get killed. A lamb or a goat or an animal did, right? And so thousands of years before Jesus comes, you have sacrifice, substitution, sacrifice, substitution. And Jesus is trying, or God's trying to show us somebody's coming. Somebody's coming that's gonna be that sacrifice, that's gonna be that substitute. Like, have you ever realized we don't do that anymore? Like you ever, like Andrew's never been singing the third song and then said, guys, um, we're going to have to just sing another song or two. Doug's on his way. He's got the lamb in his car, but he got caught up. There was an accident on Nichols, you know, and if anyone wouldn't mind staying after and helping us clean up after the sacrifice, it's kind of messy, right? It doesn't happen because there's no more sacrifices. Well, why? Why did that end? Why did that change? Because Jesus was the sacrifice. He was the substitution that takes away our sin, and all of human history, you know what God's trying to say? You're broken, but a sacrifice and a substitute is coming. It all lines up, the old, the new, all of it together is just one big picture that you and I are broken, and we can't get enlightened, and we can't work our way to him. We need a sacrifice, and we need a substitute. So that was the next piece of the chair for me. 
Now, the piece after this one is the prophecies and the fulfillment of the prophecies. Let me illustrate what I mean here. Let's just say that in the year 1013, somebody prophesied that a thousand years later, this bald guy, Doug, would live and he would work at a church on Long Island and he would marry way out of his league and he'd have three awesome kids and they would kind of be a little bit crazy. Um, Cade, the older one, would kind of be a knucklehead. He, he would kind of be a wise guy. I said to him back around the time of the election, I said, hey, should I run for president? And he said, I don't think so, Dad. And I said, why not? He goes, well, the president needs to be wise, honest, and smart. And I said, okay, it's going to be a good Christmas for you, bud. Um, <laughs> My, my daughter is just like the girliest thing on earth. You know, again, these are prophecies from 1013. Someone gave these prophecies that she'd be the girliest girl in the whole world and she'd daydream about all the guys she could date and I'd daydream how I'd break all their legs. I mean, um, you know, have stern talks with them. Um, and then my son Landon, that he, he again is just another wise guy. Last night, we're sitting at my brother-in-law's and sister's house and, and, and the kids all, all give me along. Come outside, we're gonna play adult versus kids wiffle ball game, okay. I said, all right, but you go outside. We're, gonna, we're working on a strategy in here. And Landon goes, oh, you're in here working on a strategy. I'm like, you're four, freaking me out, right? Okay, so, so seven, eight prophecies, a thousand years ago. I'd marry out of my league, I'd work here, I'd have some great kids. That'd be impressive, right? If I had a piece of paper, you know, and I could bring it out of my, my pocket and unroll it, and you could see this parchment with all these prophecies from a thousand years ago, and I could prove that those were true, you'd be pretty impressed. Well, with Jesus, we don't have seven or eight prophecies. We have over 300 prophecies. And the prophecies that we have were about where he'd be born, how he'd die. And when the prophecy was written about how he'd die, that his hands would be pierced, his feet would be pierced. Crucifixion didn't exist. That would be like someone in the year 1013 saying, someday they're going to strap a guy to a chair and they're going to flip a switch and electrocute someone to death. That'll be a form of capital punishment. That'd be like someone a thousand years when that execution didn't even exist, being able to call that out like that. That's what David did a thousand years before Jesus ever came. Now, if you're like me, you're skeptical, okay? Because the way my mind works is, okay, so supposedly these prophecies are written, right? And supposedly come, Jesus comes and fulfills them. But there's probably some things wrong with that, right? I'll give you some of the objections I came up with, and you'll see how demented I really am. Uh, my first objection was, I think it's possible that after Jesus came and lived his life, his followers, like Matthew and these writers of the Gospels, went back to what David wrote or Isaiah wrote or what Malachi wrote and just wrote in some stuff. Like, oh, hey, he'd be born in Bethlehem, and oh, hey, he would uh, die through crucifixion. And they, they went back, and they found the documents and got their hands on them and altered them, and it would look like prophecies. But the reason we know that's not true is because 250 years before Jesus came, 250 B.C., there was this thing called the Septuagint. Well, what's that? That's Hebrew, the Hebrew Bible being translated into Greek. That's David's words about how Jesus would be executed. That's Isaiah's words about what it would look like. I mean, like he took a photograph of the crucifixion scene, practically, it looks like. It would be Micah saying where Jesus would be born. And so we know, beyond the shadow of a doubt, you can Google it. Don't do it now. Do it later. You can Google Septuagint. It's just straight-up history that those documents had been translated, written, and ready to roll 250 years before Jesus ever came and lived those things out. Well, what about another objection? Another objection will be, well, what if Jesus came and knew the prophecies. He was a good Jewish boy. He went to school, learned from a rabbi, right? So he knew the prophecies. So he decides, hey, I'm going to live these out. I'm going to make people think I'm the Messiah or the Savior. So I'll just do what the prophecies said. 
Well, we know that's impossible because Jesus did things that he couldn't control or things happened to him rather that he couldn't control. Like you can't control where you're born. And that was prophesied about, and he was born there. You can't control if soldiers are going to put you up on a cross and crucify you. You can't control if soldiers are going to sit at the foot of the cross, and they're going to gamble for your clothes. And so there's all these prophecies and all these fulfillments, and maybe, just maybe, Jesus actually did them. Next piece of the chair for me is the death of the eyewitnesses. And this is gigantic. The death of the eyewitnesses. You see, here's what we have. The people that were closest to Jesus... The people who say they saw Jesus alive then were killed for it. Now, why is that a big deal? People die for their faith all the time. Well, here's why that's a big deal. It's really different for Peter to die for his faith in the first century than even me as a Christian to die for my faith here and now. Why is that? Because if I were to die for my faith here and now, I'd be saying, look, I believe in Jesus. He's changed my life. I I see history. I see prophecy. I see all these things, and so I'm convinced. I believe, right? But when Peter was put up on a cross, he wasn't dying for what he believed. He was dying for what he saw. I mean, here he is in the same area all this stuff happened. In the same place, Jesus did all these things. And they put him up on a cross. They say, we're going to kill you if you keep saying you saw this stuff. And he says, I'm going to keep saying it because I saw this stuff. Same with Matthew. Same with James. Same with 11 of the other disciples, sawed in half, speared, stoned to death, beaten to death, dragged to death, saying, we saw this with our own eyes, and you can't shut us up. Now, some of you guys might be thinking, all right, well, I still kind of think that they made it up. I still kind of think that they decided that They were going to gain power or fame or this big following, so they made up that Jesus was still alive. Well, let me put it this way, and and I wish I could come up with a better story than this. If you were here for the Evidence Series, you heard this a while back. It's just the best example I could give you. Um, One of our drummers here is Ricky, and when Ricky was a little kid, him and his little sister, Julia, went with Pastor and Kathy to McDonald's. And they're sitting at McDonald's, and Pastor says to his nephew, Ricky, he says, Ricky, I'm going to eat you. And Julia sticks up for her brother. No, don't eat Ricky, don't eat Ricky, you know. And pastor goes, no, I'm going to eat Ricky. There's nothing you can do about it. Julia, no, please don't eat Ricky. No, no, please don't. And then pastor looks at Julia and goes, okay, then I'm going to eat you. And she goes, eat Ricky, right? (laughs) Now, why did she do that? She did that because as soon as it was going to cost her something, she gave the the game up, right? I'll tell you what, as soon as it would have cost Peter his life, as soon as it would have cost Matthew his life, As soon as they said, John, we're going to put you in prison, we're going to boil you alive, they would have said, just kidding about all that resurrection stuff. We just wanted some attention, some power, some money, some fame. It didn't actually happen. But no, all those were willing to die, willing to suffer because it happened. Because they were the eyewitnesses. The next piece of the chair is that the New Testament can be trusted. You see, the New Testament is where we have all the evidence about Jesus. This is where we have the first-hand accounts. This is where we have the people saying, like Matthew and like Peter and like John, saying, this is what we saw. This is what happened. And we believe this with our whole heart. We're willing to die for it. Now, the question is, can we trust the New Testament? Now, back in the series, I think I gave like 22, 23 reasons why we can trust the New Testament. I'm going to give you two today, okay, for time's sake. But the first reason you can trust the New Testament is because 
Just think about it for a second. If Peter and John and Matthew, all these guys, are trying to gain power and they're making this story up, why on earth would they include such horrible details about themselves? Right? I mean, if you read the Bible up until after the book of Acts, I mean, all the main story about Jesus, the disciples are messing everything up. Nobody, listen to this, nobody was expecting Jesus to come back to life. Not one follower. If they were trying to say Jesus came back to life, you know what they would have said? We knew he would. We were waiting outside the tomb. We had some breakfast ready for him. I mean, we were ready. But no, where were they? Running. Even after Peter knows Jesus is alive, he's still running because he's ashamed. Why? Because he denied Jesus. Because he started cursing and swearing to distance himself from being a follower of Jesus. Jesus, you guys remember this? Jesus called Peter Satan. That's a bad day if you're a follower of Jesus. If he calls me Satan, I'm, I'm quitting. I'm just telling you right now, okay? And so if you're Peter or if you're John or any of these guys and you're trying to gain a following, you're trying to build that this story is true, you don't paint yourself as faithless and complete idiots, honestly. Another kind of big thing is if, and, and ladies, don't take offense at this. This is just the way it is, all right? In the first centuries, in the first century, rather, women were treated horribly. And if the followers of Jesus were trying to build a case that Jesus had risen from the dead, they never would have made women the first eyewitnesses. Women's testimonies weren't even admissible in court. And so they never would have said, hey, guess who saw him first? The ladies, the women, go talk to him. No one would have believed them. No one would have even listened because it was such a different time than ours. And so there's several things, and way many more, that they never would have done if they were just trying to build some kind of case. But maybe they left those mistakes in there, and maybe Peter allowed that to be written about him, calling, being called Satan by Jesus, because he actually was. And he wasn't trying to sell something that wasn't true. He was trying to tell a story that changed his life to the point he was willing to give it. The next piece of evidence that I found was the transformation of the first century and the birth of the church. Something happened in the first century. I mean, all right, even if you don't want to say Jesus rose from the dead, something incredible happened in the first century. The reason we know that is, just think for a second, you know some religious people in your life? You know what I mean by that? Like, like you know the terminology even, like, oh, he works out religiously. What does that mean? He never misses it. He never changes. He's the same every day. doesn't matter. Actually, there's a guy on my block. I call him Blue Shorts Guy. Blue Shorts Guy is out running every single day of the year. doesn't matter if it's snowing. It could be 100 degrees out. John's shaking his head. He lives in my apartment in my house. He knows. Blue Shorts Guy is out there in his blue shorts. could be three feet of snow like we had back in the day. He's out there. He's like trudging through. He doesn't care, right? Why? He's religiously exercising. He will not change. Nothing's going to stop him. Okay, what do you have in the first century? You have religious people called the Jews. They had worshiped God a certain way for thousands of years. They had worshiped on a certain day for thousands of years. They had customs and laws and rules that they lived by. And then something happened in the first century where all that went out the window. And these religious people worshiped Jesus as God. Worship Jesus as a risen Savior. Changed their day of worship from Saturday to Sunday. Threw out all the traditions and begun to realize it wasn't about them earning their way to God. It was about what Jesus had done for them. I don't know about you. I know some religious people. Something happened in that first century to change their minds. Something so big they were willing to completely change the way that they lived and worshiped. Guys, what did we celebrate last week? Easter. 
What do we celebrate back in December? Christmas. I mean, does that prove Jesus rose back from the dead? No. But it proves something big happened in the first century. Something that is affecting us 2,000 years later worldwide. And so, again, if that was my only piece, if I said, guys, come on, look at the first century and the transformation and the birth of the church, then, then put your faith in this. I'd understand if you were like, nah. But do you see, as an important piece of this chair, as we continue to put this thing together, how powerful these different pieces are? The next piece is the historical writings outside of the Bible. This is really important because if you watch Discovery Channel, History Channel, you know, a lot of times they'll, they'll, they'll leave this stuff out. The truth is there are tons of different historical writings about Jesus outside of the Bible. There are a bunch of things that line up with what you and I know because of Scripture that has nothing to do with Scripture. In fact, many of them were written by people who weren't even followers of Jesus. I'll give you two examples. Tacitus and Josephus. Tacitus and Josephus, one a Jew and one a Roman historian, they both verify what our Bible says. And here's what they verify. They say Jesus lived, was put to death by Pontius Pilate, and that his followers claim he rose back from the dead. And listen, this is really important, that they were willing to be tortured and die for that claim. And so you have outside sources, people who did not believe in Jesus, and I could give you a bunch more that are saying, man, just what your Bible says happened, that, that's what history also says happened. In fact, we know that terrible things were happening in the Christians. Nero was doing terrible things. 64 AD, there was this huge fire. He blamed on the Christians, and tons of Christians died because of that. Wait, 64 AD, that's like 30 years after the resurrection. You're telling me that there were enough people already following Jesus in that city, willing to die for their faith? Yeah, because why? Because they had either seen it or talked to someone who saw it. And so you have all this historical evidence outside. Nero used to take Christians, and obviously you guys know he'd feed them you know, to lions and Colosseum, but, but another thing he did is he would take them and he would use them as human torches to light up his gardens at night, light them on fire, hanging in the air. But they, you know what history tells us? They wouldn't shut up. They wouldn't stop. They wouldn't give in. They wouldn't say, you know what? If you say it that way, then maybe I won't give my life for it. They just kept talking about this Jesus. The next one for me is miracles and changed lives. Miracles and changed lives. And this is so powerful because I don't know about you, one big deal for me was that I needed to see that what the Bible said could happen when you pray could actually happen. You know? Like I needed to see that if You know, Peter and these guys prayed and saw miracles. Man, I wanted to see some miracles. I wanted to see God show up in my life. And so I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, My aunt, awesome lady, got cancer, um, went through terrible treatment, radiation. Uh, Her entire immune system was destroyed. They were told her she would never get her immune system back. Her blood would never be right. And she's a teacher. So she's in school and she's around kids all day. And she's she's sick constantly. She was constantly ill, constantly coming down with stuff because her immune system couldn't fight it. So she's here one night, and the band's playing, and she suddenly begins to feel something going on in her body. Nothing crazy or weird, but she just felt something wasn't quite like normal. And so she said, God, what's going on? And she just felt like God impressed on her heart, I'm healing, I'm healing you. I'm healing your blood. Again, it's just quiet. She, she came and told me afterwards, you know, no, no big show. She just came and said, hey, I just want to let you know this is what I kind of felt, and I, I, just, I just ask you to pray with me. I'm going to a doctor's appointment tomorrow that was already scheduled. Just pray. You know, that God did something neat. 
when she comes back and tells me later in the week that the doctor walked into the room with his jaw dropped because her blood was perfect. He said, I have no explanation for this. And she said, I do. She said, God, God touched me last night. I know that he healed me. And she's been great ever since. That was probably about six or seven years ago. Um, another one, and this is an awesome story. My buddy in college, Evans, one day, he's having like a college emo moment. He's driving down the street. His girlfriend just broke his heart. And he, you, know, you know, when your girlfriend breaks your heart, God can't exist anymore, right? And so he's crying out to God. He goes, God, if, if you're real, I mean, this is it, God. I'm, I'm serious here. If you're real, I need you to, to, to show me. And so he goes and driving down the street and he's praying. And next thing he knows, he sees police lights go on in the mirror behind him. He's thinking, great, thank you, Lord. This is a great, you know, great miracle you're showing me here. Well, the cop gets out of the car, and my friend says, uh, did I do something wrong? And the cop says, no, I just want to make sure you're okay. I saw you're upset. And uh, my friend says, no, I'm, I'm okay. Can I just go? And the cop says, well, you can go, but I just want to let you know that God is real. And he gets back in his car, and he drives away. Now, that cop has never pulled me over. You know, I would appreciate it if he did. The cops to pull me over say, this ticket is real, and you'll pay it, right? <laughs> But there in that moment, you have a miracle and a changed life. You have somebody who saw God show up in a way that's incredible. And we don't always get it how we want it. Um, my mom passed away back in November, and we prayed for her. We prayed that God would heal her, and she didn't get healed. God's not a genie. He does things his way, and he does things how he knows best, and we have to trust him. But we do know that God answers prayer. The last part of the chair for me, was that God's way works. God's way works. What do I mean by that? I mean that if God is really there and Jesus really lives and the Bible are his words to us, then when we take the Bible and we apply it to our life, it should work. It should bring some pretty incredible results if it's actually true. So when I take the Bible and what it says about marriage and loving my wife, if I apply that, then I'll tell you what I've seen you have a great marriage. Now, does that mean everything's perfect? Well, I'm perfect. She's, no, I'm kidding. Uh, no, not at all. It doesn't mean everything's perfect. But man, it means it's different. In fact, you're not even going to believe me on this. You're probably going to have a harder time believing this than anything else I said today. But Dr. Phil, in about 10 years ago, came out with a statistic. And the statistic, the first half you won't be surprised at, the second half you won't believe. The first half of the statistic is that one out of two marriages end in divorce. We know this, right? The second statistic is when you introduce regular prayer between a husband and wife, when a husband and wife are willing to pray together every day, the statistic of divorce goes from one in two to one in 10,000. That's Dr. Phil. That's not Billy Graham. Because God's way works. When you say, all right, I'm going to do things your way. I'm going to love you like God called me to love. I'm going to honor you like God called me to honor. When you take the way that God calls us to raise our kids and it works, then that's a powerful way to say, man, maybe God knows what he's talking about. Maybe if his way works, he's actually there. Maybe when I apply God's word to my life and I have a joy I've never had before and can't find anywhere else, I have a peace, I have a hope, I have a satisfaction I can't find anywhere else, then maybe, just maybe, that's powerful evidence that God's way works. And so I don't know about you, but for me, this is powerful. Because it's not just a little piece of a chair. It's not just, oh, look at the prophecies. It's not just, oh, look at how he changes lives. It's not just, look how his way works. No, it's all of it together. 
And when one little aspect of my faith comes under fire, the chair stands. Because it's not about one little piece of my faith. It's about the whole thing. And it keeps me, and it's strengthened me, and it helps me strengthen others. And so what I want you guys to know is that the evidence about Jesus can be trusted. The chair can support the weight of your life in eternity. It's true. It's real. History says it. Prophecy says it. Miracles say it. God's way working says it. The New Testament says it. The Old Testament and the New Testament together say it. The natural and the supernatural battle says it. All throughout, the evidence about Jesus can be trusted. And it's life-changing. And so what I want to challenge you to do is I want to challenge you. If you're not a follower of Jesus and you feel today like you wow, have seen maybe this is true. I would love for you to put your faith in Jesus today and kind of sit down in the chair, not literally come up here, but you know, sit down in the chair, so to speak. But if you're not ready for that, that's okay. And like I said, you can take one of these today and listen. You can keep coming. I'd encourage you to do that. But, but I wanna just read one verse with you before I pray. And it's a powerful verse. Because There's this guy, Thomas, who was a follower of Jesus, and after the resurrection and everything happened, everybody saw Jesus but him. And he kind of got the name, Thomas the Doubter. Poor guy just didn't see Jesus first, you know, and now he's got this bad name, right? But Thomas the Doubter said something. He said, I'll never, ever believe until I put my hands in the nail holes and in his feet and in his side where the sword went. I'll never believe until I do that. And you know what is so great about Jesus is that Jesus didn't say, well, Thomas, because of your unbelief, I will never, ever allow you to be my follower. I'll never show myself to you. Because you have questions, because you doubt, because you're skeptical, then that's just too bad. That's on you. There's nothing I can do about that. Now look at what happened. You can read here in John chapter 20. Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. It's powerful. Because God isn't intimidated by our questions. He's not intimidated by our doubts and our struggles and our lack of faith. He simply says, look, search me out and believe. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that we can trust you. I thank you, Lord, that there's not a tiny little bit of evidence. I thank you, God, there's not one little piece. I thank you, God, that there's tons and tons of evidence. And like I said, I could have done this for nine more weeks. And I thank you for the truth. And I know that there's people in all different places in their journey. There are Christians in this room who love you. And and I pray for them today that their faith has been strengthened. I pray that their faith isn't in one little bracket or one little piece of the chair anymore. I pray their faith has seen increase today. I also pray for those that might not be followers of Jesus today. And I pray, God, that you would do something so real in their life that they would see you like Thomas did. That they would see your power and your goodness, your love, and the truth about you. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus today, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to him. And again, if you're not ready, that's okay. I'd encourage you to keep coming back, keep checking things out, keep on looking, keep on searching, ask good questions. 
But as we say all the time here, C.S. Lewis said that if there's even the possibility Jesus actually lives and actually wants to know you and be your savior, then wouldn't it be worth it to look into it? But if you're ready today to sit in the chair, then I wanna give you the opportunity to. So would you just pray this quietly in your heart to Jesus if you wanna respond to him today. Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Thank you for the evidence. Thank you for forgiving me and wanting to remove all my sin. And unlike every religious figure who tells me I gotta work my way to get where I wanna go, thank you that you are the way to get where I wanna go. So thank you for this gift of salvation and life. In your name I pray, amen.